This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for November 11th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we share the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. In December this year, the Webb Telescope will launch into space. This has been 30 years coming. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for Science. We talk about the excitement surrounding Webb's launch and the data that will rain down upon us once it's up there in space. Next, we have Greg Owens. He's an assistant professor of biology at the University of Victoria. His team compared the genomes of short and long-lived rockfish species. We talk about the genes linked to those long lifespans. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. James Webb Space Telescope was first conceived of in the late 1980s. And now it's set to launch in December of this year, more than three decades later. After such a long road to launch, the anticipation for what Webb will bring to astronomy is intense. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for Science. He wrote about Webb's past and future in this week's issue. Hi, Dan. Hi. This has been such a long time coming. I guess we just need the highlights of the hiccups along the way. What were some of the big blocks to getting Webb launched? I think it just turned out to be much more complicated than they foresaw at the beginning. They wanted a big mirror, bigger than you could fit inside a rocket fairing. So they had to come up with a mirror that could be folded. And they wanted a telescope that could see in the infrared. 
So they needed to be able to cool the telescope and its instruments to very low temperatures because in the infrared, things glow brightly and uh, that would spoil their view. All of that made it a much more complicated telescope than the Hubble Space Telescope. And that took a long time to develop. You know, development costs money and time. Right. How much was the cost at the end of the day? The telescope itself is about $9 billion. There's a bit of money as well for operating it and the launch. And there are certain components that were contributed by the Canadian Space Agency and the European Space Agency. So those add to the cost. It's a lot of money for a telescope. Definitely. Launch is in December. It's very close to now. But the telescope won't actually be ready to capture data for about a month after. What has to happen first? Once it's up in space, it sort of starts to unfurl like a flower. So first of all, solar arrays have to open so that it can power itself. And then it needs to unfurl its antennas. And after a while, the telescope has to start unfolding. It's a segmented mirror, but it has two sides which are folded back so that it's tall and thin and can fit inside the rocket. And so those have to swing around and uh, form the mirror properly. And it also has this enormous sun shield, which uh, protects the telescope, the mirror, and its instruments from the sun's heat. And that's about the size of a tennis court, and that has to be extended out on booms. It's quite a lot of processes going on during that month, and they all have to happen faultlessly because unlike Hubble, it's going to be positioned a long way away from Earth and it's much too far away to be repaired by astronauts if something goes wrong. A lot of people compare the Webb telescope to Hubble. What are some of the differences in their capabilities? Apart from the size of the mirror, you know, it's more than five times larger, the mirror, so it'll just collect more light. So if you're looking at a very faint object, you'll get a much clearer view with the web. The other thing is it's designed to work over a much broader range of wavelengths. Hubble looks mostly at visible light, a little bit of the ultraviolet and a little bit of the infrared. Webb is almost entirely in the infrared. It's longer wavelengths than we can see with our eyes, but it's a wavelengths that are particularly interesting to astronomers. With this giant mirror and the ability to look into the infrared, the Webb telescope is really poised to look far, far back in time. What big questions about the beginning of the universe will it tackle? Just being able to see back there is going to enable them to do a ton of things. The farther you look, the farther back in time you're also looking because light, mm -hmm. you know, takes time to get to us. Hubble managed to look much further than people expected. The universe is 13.8 billion years old, and Hubble has looked about 400 million years after the Big Bang. So that's... Yeah, that is pretty far back. That's a long way. But, you know, when Hubble's looking that far back, it's only seeing the very brightest things. So there were a lot of things going on back then that we can't currently see. Firstly, because they're too faint for Hubble to see, and also because the light is redshifted. So because the universe is constantly expanding, any light that's emitted back then gets stretched as it travels along through space to reach us. So things that were emitted in visible light will be deep in the infrared by the time they get to us. 
And that means that Hubble can't see them. Right. Hubble's presented us with a biased view of the bright things. Yeah, that's it. So it's only seeing the things that back then that are shining brightly in the ultraviolet. So Webb has been designed from the beginning to be an infrared telescope, pretty much for that reason, because uh, astronomers realized if they wanted to look a long way back in time, they would need to look for things in the infrared, because most stars produce most of their brightness in the visible range, and they knew that that would make their light inaccessible to Hubble. Do we know how far back in time that the Webb telescope will be able to look? They you know, are hopeful that it'll nudge closer to the very earliest stars and galaxies, maybe 200 million years after the Big Bang. They don't really know how far they'll be able to get. Hubble surprised them, and they hope that Webb will surprise them too. But at a certain point, they're going to get to the very first things and not be able to see anything because there was nothing before <laughs> then or nothing that was shining brightly enough to see. And if they reach those very first stars and galaxies, that would be a major triumph because that's something that people are very curious about. Another big question that you talk about is the reionization of the universe. How might Webb be able to address that big mystery? Yes, well, this is about a big change that happened in the first billion years of the universe's history, where this original hydrogen helium, which was produced in the Big Bang, was a neutral gas floating around the universe, and eventually it, some of it coalesced into stars and galaxies. But during that period, the rest of the gas that was floating around was ionized. And it had its electrons stripped off so that it was ions again. And we want to know why that happened. What they think happened is that it was light from the first stars and galaxies. But the question is, were there enough stars? Galaxies weren't everywhere like they are today. They were rare things. And so they want to know whether there were enough stars. And if there weren't enough stars, what else could have done it? There are other contenders, such as early black holes, which gobbled up lots of matter and shone very brightly. And that's another contender for what it is that caused the ionization. There is a lot we need to learn about the beginning of the universe, I'm sure. But the other main branch of research that is going to be conducted from Webb has to do with what we can discover about exoplanets. What makes this telescope such a good tool for exploring other planetary systems? Well, like any uh, telescope, the size and the clarity of the vision is what uh, helps seeing things that are very distant and faint. Although it wasn't originally planned as a telescope for looking at exoplanets, it just so happens that it'll be very good for it. When it was originally planned in the late 90s, we didn't even know there were exoplanets. They were only discovered in the mid-90s. So having a huge space telescope where it doesn't have the atmosphere in the way, sort of making the images wobble, means that it has very, very clear vision. And so when you look at a distant planetary system with a star and planets around it, you can tease them apart in a more precise way because you've got such a big mirror and looking in infrared, which has a lot of useful information when looking at atmospheres. 
So we're not going to just be counting planets like we've done in the past and then even maybe examining their atmospheres by looking at them when they transit in front of a star, but there's going to be even more resolution. Yeah, one of the the problems that we've always had looking at exoplanets is that the planets are very faint and their stars are very bright, which means that for a long time we could only sense them indirectly by them passing in front of a star so they make it slightly dimmer or by them making the star wobble from side to side from their own gravity. And that has only told us very basic information about the planets. We can get their mass and their size, but not really very much more. Hubble and Spitzer, the infrared space telescope that has preceded Webb, have given a little bit of information about atmospheres. So you get this by separating out the light like a prism does. And so you can look for the absorption lines of gases in the atmospheres of those planets from the starlight going through the atmosphere. So when a planet passes in front of its star, some of its starlight is absorbed by those gases. And that little signature can be detected by Hubble and Spitzer, but Webb has instruments designed to do that with much more precision. So we'll be able to detect lots of things in exoplanet atmospheres and not necessarily detect life, but we might be able to detect what sort of level of habitability, whether it's a friendly atmosphere that might be able to harbor life. So we talked about how Hubble had some visits, some help repairs, that kind of thing. But that's not going to be possible with the Webb telescope. It's really far away. What does that mean for the lifespan of Webb? Yeah, it means that it is much more limited. Hubble is now 31 years old and still working pretty well. But Webb is reliant on how much propellant it's going to use up. It's orbiting a gravitational balance point, about 150 million kilometers from Earth. And that requires a little bit of fuel to make sure it keeps in this orbit. And when that fuel runs out, it's not going to be able to steer anymore. And so it won't be able to point where astronomers need it to point. It's designed to definitely work for five years. They fully expect it to work for 10 years. Beyond that, nobody is sure. So astronomers are really keen to use it very efficiently and do as much as they can in that time span. Does that mean that someone's already started planning the next space-based telescope? Oh, yes, very much so. And we'll hear about that quite soon. The Decadal Survey for Astronomy and Astrophysics, which is a planning exercise, which has been going on for the last three years, is going to be reporting this week. It'll reveal what astronomers think they ought to do next in terms of big space telescopes. Okay. Well, Dan, when's the launch date for Webb? 18th of December. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Daniel Clary is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for researcher Greg Owens. We talk about why some rockfish species live more than 100 years. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. 
if we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. You may have heard of Greenland sharks that can live for 400 years. Did you know that some Pacific rockfish can live more than 100 years? Other species of rockfish might only live 10 years. Why such a range in lifespan? Greg Owens is an assistant professor of biology at the University of Victoria. His team compared the genomes of many species of rockfish to look for genes that might help us understand lifespan better. Hi, Greg. Hi, Sarah. Just to start out, I saw a picture of a rockfish that was suggested for the cover. Is there kind of a look to them, or are there only certain ones that have like a really big lip like that? Oh, they have a wide variety of different lip shapes, <laughs> but they all kind of look like a sort of a classic fish. Like if you picture an ocean fish, that's what the rockfish looks like. You used more than 80 different species for this study, so there might be quite a range in size and where they live, that kind of thing. They don't get too small, but they also don't get super big. So they're about maybe six inches at the smallest and probably smaller than a meter, like two feet at the largest. Okay. Let's just jump right into genomes here. When you looked at the genomes for long-lived and short-lived and everywhere in between, what were some of the notable differences? What stuck out about the genomes of the long-lived rockfish? So we are looking for genes that seem to be under selection in the long-lived species. And we found that there was an enrichment for genes involved in DNA repair, which sort of makes sense because you could imagine that if you're living for a really long time, you have to maintain your DNA for a long time. We know in humans that DNA mutations can lead to things like cancer. Mm -hmm. So in these long-lived species, they seem to have changed their sequences of their DNA repair genes, perhaps allowing them to maintain their genomes over extended lifespans. Any other genes undergoing selection besides DNA maintenance type stuff? We also saw some enrichments for genes involved in metabolism, such as insulin signaling genes. And those have been shown to be involved in lifespan in other systems too. What about body size? I know at least in mammals, I think there's this general rule that bigger species live longer. Does that hold true for the rockfish that you looked at? That certainly holds true for rockfish. We see that the rockfish that are bigger tend to live longer. And also that those that tend to live at the bottom of the ocean, so in deeper water, also tend to live longer, which is something we tried to control for in the study. I was going to say, did you find a bunch of genes related to size or living at greater depth for correlations with lifespan? Yeah, we looked at basically tried to parse out the signal of were the genes we're finding actually associated with lifespan or were they associated with size or with depth? We sort of distinguished between these three categories. And we see that, for example, for the DNA repair genes, which we saw initially were associated with lifespan, actually they're more associated with size. So that makes sense in that maybe that the bigger ones have more cells, so they're doing more cell replications. 
But we saw that the genes involved in sort of metabolism, insulin signaling, those ones tend to be associated with lifespan itself and not some of the covariates of it. Can we just, as an aside here, talk about this relationship between size and lifespan? What's the missing step? Why does something bigger live longer? Oh, man, that's a hard question. (laughs) I mean, you could imagine that, especially for rockfish, a bigger fish has fewer predators. A lot of predation in the ocean is gape limited. So if you're a small fish, everything can eat you. If you're a big fish, very few things can eat you. So you can imagine that once you've got to a large size, there's just very few things that are going to kill you. I'm not sure if that's the whole picture. It actually almost certainly is not the whole picture. Do big fish have more babies? Oh, certainly. There's a really interesting pattern where in these fish and in other ocean fish, the big fish are super producers. The female rockfish, some of the ones we studied, at their oldest age, they can produce up to a million eggs a year. Yeah. So that's something that you would imagine a species selecting for because it's going to increase you know, your ability to reproduce yourself. What about a link with population size? This is kind of another, it's not necessarily exactly related to how long you live, but it was also an important correlate that you saw. Yes. Population size is very important for sort of evolutionary potential. And what we saw when looking at the genomes is that the species that lived longer and tended to be larger tend to have smaller population sizes in their sort of evolutionary history than the species that live shorter lifespans or have smaller size. What do you think might be the mechanism there, the relationship between population size and lifespan? There's some sort of complicated theory about what you expect to see for population size based on the sort of unequal reproductive output in having a few really big, really fecund female fish. But also I think it has to do with the amount of space the fish takes up in its environment. You could have 10 relatively small fish in the same space as one really big fish in the environment. It's funny to think about there's mechanical things here going on. There's what's happening with predators. And there's just keeping yourself alive by keeping your cells healthy. It's a lot of different factors that go into calculating lifespan. It's really interesting. What were some of the other important links between the genes you looked at and lifespan? One of the things we also looked at is the mutations that occur in the genome. And we see that these species that live longer tend to have slightly different mutations in the genome. So there's certain types of mutations that occur sort of a very clock-like manner. And those we see are slightly enriched in the species that live longer, perhaps because they have fewer other mutational sources because they have fewer reproductive events per unit time in their evolutionary lifespan. Does that mean they have less variety to draw from? I wouldn't say less variety. We couldn't really quantify that because for the amount of diversity in the genome is highly dependent on, on many different things, including the population size, but they have a different spectrum of mutations. You mentioned in passing that some of these genes have been flagged before for being related to lifespan, but does it tell us something about human lifespan? Can it be applied to organisms closer to us? I think there's some application there. I mean, of course, you wouldn't want to take a rockfish gene and put it into a human. But what you could do is look at the genes in rockfish and try and figure out what about them is allowing rockfish to live longer. And then taking those same concepts and trying to apply that to seeing how aging occurs in humans. Did you find that long lifespan evolved several times in rockfish? Yes. When we looked at the phylogenetic relationships between different rockfish species, we see that longevity and long-lived rockfish occurred multiple times across the tree of rockfish, which is suggesting that it's a 
pretty evolutionarily labile trait, so it can change fairly rapidly. Sometimes when I'm reading about lifespan, I'm like, why don't we all just live forever? Why isn't it adaptive to have super long-lived species? Why is that not always a good idea for you? It's an evolutionary question in some sense. If you think about it, for some species, they stop reproducing at some point, or at some point, you've already had all of your children in your life. And at that point, evolution doesn't care about you as much because you've already done your duty and produced the next generation. And so if there are mutations that cause you to die after reproduction, there's very little selection for removing those. In contrast with rockfish, what we see is that as they get older, they just produce more and more babies. So the old female rockfish produce thousands or millions of eggs. So this is in very contrast to in other species where we see there's sort of a gradual decline. For rockfish, they just keep getting better and better, which would suggest that there's sort of selection for letting them stay alive and get older and older. Does that mean something about the limitations on this for understanding other animals because so few of them continue to reproduce infinitely with age? I think in some extent, yes. It would affect the evolutionary forces that are controlling age. But I think ultimately the result is differences in lifespan, which can be applicable between multiple species. Got it. Can other species be analyzed this way? Are there any other, you know, interesting sets of species with this range of lifespan that we could do this analysis on? Other groups have looked at this same question in mammals. So this is a much larger group and much older, but they have a wide range of lifespans, as we all know. I think there are other groups of fish that where you could look at, but I think rockfish are sort of exceptional in their lifespan because they are some of the oldest living vertebrates. What are you guys going to do next? Now we are going to leverage the genomes that we developed. So we, we sequenced all these genomes, but we haven't really dug into any individual species. So now we're going to start thinking about using these genomes to understand the more sort of local evolutionary history of particular species of rockfish. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Sarah. Greg Owens is an assistant professor of biology at the University of Victoria. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. And you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S.org join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job.
Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.